We're still on chapter four, titled The Flight Toward the Himalayas. However, that flight is over now. And we know Yogananda is back home. Uh, a little bit tail between his legs um, has been tamed once again. But uh, a surprise was awaiting him, his father having um, hired a tutor for him, Swami Kebalananda, unknown to all, a very deep and exalted disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya. And so last when we left, we talked about some of the salient features of the physical form, his eyes, his luxuriant curls, his gentle movements. And we were talking about how our own body and our own eyes can help generate these states of consciousness for us. And the last line of that moment is uh, Yogananda saying, Many of our happy hours together we spent in deep Kriya meditation. So rather than studying Sanskrit, <laughs> Yogananda and his tutor were just spending so much more time in meditation. And the other thing that they did together often was Yogananda would constantly pester his teacher to tell him stories from the life of Lahiri Mahashaya. And this is where we will now go. Just getting these little sections will start helping us get a glimpse into the life specifically of Lahiri Mahashaya, but just through each of these, uh, you can say, characters, these episodes, these saints, we get a glimpse of our own potential, what we could also be doing, how we could also be perhaps perceiving ourselves, our lives and others. So here, uh, Shastri Mahashaya, Swami Kebalananda says, I was able to remain near Lahiri Mahashaya for 10 years. So this is the setting. For 10 years in Banaras, Swami Kebalananda spent that time with Lahiri Mahashaya. His Banaras home was my nightly goal of pilgrimage. So you could see in all these characters, they've all had lives, full-on lives. They are working, they go out, they fend for themselves, they have families. But at the end of the day, every one of them was, you know, would make a beeline for Lahiri Mahashaya's home, who was the ex example, the epitome of the householder yogi. And there, he would say, the guru was always present in a small front parlor on the first floor. As he sat in lotus posture on the backless wooden seat, his disciples garlanded him in a semicircle. His eyes sparkled and danced with the joy of the divine. They were ever half-closed, peering through the inner telescopic orb into a sphere of eternal bliss. We've all seen that uh, only one photograph of Lahiri Masha, and you can see his eyes, you know, just kind of gently closed, gently opened. And that Yogananda said represents the kind of neither subconscious nor conscious but in the superconscious state. And even in our own meditations, we start our meditations always with our eyes closed because it helps not to have any distractions. But as we go deep into our meditation and the eyeballs lift of their own natural accord, those of us who practice Kriya, practice Hongsa, we know one of the main key ingredients is to keep our gaze uplifted. But when we start our meditation, that's something of a conscious effort from our part. Okay, I have to keep my gaze uplifted. But as that life force starts to move up, the eyes want to not only stay uplifted, they will move further up. 
And when that happens, the eyes gently open. And then we achieve that state where even though they're gently open, we're still unable to actually see anything through. And we achieve that state of neither conscious nor subconscious, but super conscious. So in your own meditations, again, this is beautiful because here we are talking about the eyes again. Use these little states of understanding to see, okay, what do I experience when my eyes are straight? What do I experience when my eyes go down? What do I experience when they go up? And then what do I experience when they're kind of in that in-between state? Do you have something to Can say? I just want to create a little bit more of a context in the life of Lahiri Mahashai. I mean, here there is like almost no mention of his background, but let's just keep in mind that Lahiri Mahashaya, at the age of 33, he meets Babaji. He has this incredible cosmic experience and he wants to stay with his guru, Babaji. And Babaji, and we'll go into it in the next future, in the future chapters, chapters. But Babaji says to him, no, my dear son, I mean, you, you have a role to play. You have a householder, you are a father, you are a husband, you have children. I mean, people need to have examples of what it means to live a spiritual life and you can be their hope. So. I'm sorry, but you cannot stay with me in the Himalayas. Please go back, go back to your job, to your family, to your neighborhood, and just try to become that living example of what it means to live a perfect, balanced life where you embrace joyfully as much as you can your responsibilities, your dharma, yet you have, you know, your other side is about deepening your spirituality and your relationship with the divine and that's something that that was Lahiri Mahashaya's I would say main mission to bring to each one of us that perfect balance between respon worldly responsibilities and to remain anchored very strongly in the divine so here it says like he was sitting there the whole night. I mean, just imagine Lahir Mahashaya after the whole day working, dealing perhaps with his wife, with the kids, with the children, with everything. Then he put all those responsibilities aside when he finished them. And then he became so accessible to all those disciples or devotees who were magnetically drawn intuitively to that divine presence that he represented. So here we have Lahiri Mahashaya, like many of us, having regular lives. And then at night, you, you, you offer yourself to everyone who wants to be in your presence. I mean, and Lahiri Mahashaya knew that was part of his mission. And he just allowed himself to spend, you know, those eight, nine hours in meditation. And we will see right now giving very little advice to devotees. I mean, he was a man with a very, very few words. I mean, he hardly say, you know, more than two, three, four words at a time. So the disciples who were there was most, were mostly to absorb from his presence to meditate and through that osmosis 
of being in his presence just to to understand spirituality and the teachings from a much more vibrational level through the practice of Kriya. So I want for us to keep this in mind that Lahiri Mahashaya had also a regular life and duties he had to perform. And then, you know, he had this other real mission who was to uplift those disciples who God himself sent to him. Lahir Mahashaya didn't have any outward role. He wasn't, you know, uh, lecturing throughout the country. He would just sit there every night and whoever came, whatever, you know, he was able to give them um, something vibrationally. But, but let's just have that image of Lahiri Mahashaya, just like after a long day, just now being able to help people at a very different level, especially those close, very, very sincere disciples who wanted more than just, you know, a nice, you know, spiritual um, understanding no, of life, like something deeper. Continuing on the vein that Narayani has already touched on, uh, Swami Kebalananda says, He seldom spoke at length. And to be with him, even without exchanging a word for days, was experience which changed my entire being. So, this is another hint to us, the relationship the Guru and the disciple um, kind of shares. It's not a relationship and this is where ourselves, especially those of us on this path, it's so important for us to realize our relationship with our Guru is magnetic, vibrational and based purely on consciousness. Has nothing to do with his advice, nothing to do with his words. His words are galore in the books all over, but uh, we can read every book, every word the Guru has said. We could even know everything he would like us to do because we know what he wants us to do. He wants us to meditate, he wants us to be kind, he wants us to serve, he wants us to be loving, he wants us to, you know, uh, uplift as many people as we can. I mean, we know what he wants. It's not that we still do it, but we know what he wants. But how he changes us is not through his words. How he changes us is how we are able to receive him and where that exchange can take place from our side. Because remember, when we started the autobiography, we talked about Yogananda using the, the term disciple-guru relationship rather than guru-disciple because the Guru's role is fixed. He knows what he's doing. We are the variable. We are the unknown entity here. And it becomes our job to see how much I can draw. And I don't need words. I don't need a physical form. I don't need anything except attunement. And then uh, Swamiji goes on to say here, If any invisible barrier rose in the path of my concentration, I would meditate at the Guru's feet. So another little hint for us. Anytime in our meditation, if the mind goes restless, I mean, <laughs> a lot of invisible barriers do come to us in our meditation and uh, I'm sure they are much stronger than Swami Kevalananda's <laughs> invisible barriers. But he says, the moment any such thing would come, I would immediately start to meditate on the Guru's feet. I mean, that's, an, that's such a sweet, humbling image to kind of think of your Guru's feet, especially at the point between the eyebrows. And this is the idea 
often of why we do pranams, why we touch the feet of saints, of elders, why we would place our forehead at their feet is because we humbly kind of declare that my highest point is equal to your lowest point, which is the feet in the body. That's why we are, you know, in, in Hindu tradition, touching your feet to something else is considered uh, not the best practice. And so that becomes our um, uh, process during meditation. How can my highest center, if nothing else, attune to your lowest center? And that itself is going to bring me to these deep states of meditation and understanding. You wanted to say? No, no. Ariani says, like walking in their footsteps, which is exactly true. Then he goes on to say, you have anything here? I think we have the same, so you can go. I'm going from here though. Uh, we have to keep checking ki what has she marked and what have I marked. I just marked this line because I think this is the secret of really attunement and the real perception that can come from the Guru. And he says, the master was, was a living temple of God whose secret doors were open to all disciples through devotion. As Shurja was saying, the ability for us to receive from the Guru comes uh, from our ability to open our heart. The heart <laughs> is the place where everything is stored there. Our likes and dislikes and don't you dare, don't you dare me to, I mean, don't you dare to tell me what do I need to do and I want to accept this from you, but I want to reject this other aspect from whatever you are asking me to do. So we are almost many times like bargain, bargaining, bargaining, bargaining with the guru. Like we only like to take from him the things that are really comfortable for us or those things that are easy for us to understand, to accept. But whenever the Guru asks something of us that is not um, according to our you know, expectations and hopes, what do we do? Boom. We just close the door of our heart. And this is something that we are doing constantly for some of you who don't have yet an official formal guru, formal guru. We do this also with life, with our own karma. We don't have the courage that it takes to open yourself completely and to accept fully and embrace whatever life, your karma, your guru is sending you right now. Once someone, uh, Swami Kriyananda said, it's not enough to accept your tests, but you have to learn to love them. And I think this is really the main relationship with your guru. Not only accept, like in resignation, okay, if you are sending me this test or if you are asking me to do this or to meditate this many hours or to do seva or to do tidying, you know, or introspection or reading your books, whatever that might be that the Guru sometimes asks of us, you know, our ability to say, you know what, yes, I'm going to follow this 
uh, with faith, with trust, that you know what I need, and I'm going to open my heart completely to be transformed in the process. You can understand your guru and the teachings and the spiritual path and all the scriptures, the Gita, the Bible, intellectually, but if your heart is not, so, is not open, there is nothing you can do with it. It's not what you read, it's what you do with what you read that really changes you. So look in your heart, in your meditations, perhaps at the end of your meditations, you know, you want to feel like you are removing layers, you know, of fears and, you know, kind of contraction and just keep opening yourself more and more to the guidance of the Guru and the Divine through your life. Lahiri Mahashaya was no bookish interpreter of the scriptures, just what Narayani was saying right now. If asked to explain the different planes of consciousness mentioned in the ancient texts, he would smilingly assent. I will undergo those states and presently tell you what I perceive. <laughs> he was thus diametrically unlike the teachers who commit scripture to memory and then give forth unrealized abstractions. Again, just constantly helping us see the difference between a teacher, a learned person, a wise man, and who our guru is. And when you are connecting with your guru, don't just ask for understanding. Ask to be guided. Help me experience what these states are. Don't just tell me what is super, you know, I don't understand what super consciousness is, uh, how many astral worlds are there, what are my chakras. Help me experience them because that's the you can say unique reality of the guru is that he can he has permission to enter into you and to change you nobody else has that permission and it is up to us to give that permission when uh, if you take the classes of kriya yoga especially through ananda swamiji uh, before the om technique and definitely before kriya included the discipleship ceremony which is very unique in many ways to ananda um, because while it is vaguely understood that, yeah, if I'm taking Kriya, if I'm taking an initiation, I'm naturally now a disciple. But Swamiji wanted to include a ceremony specifically for discipleship, where you have to say, I open myself to you. I willingly assent and give you permission to come into my life. Because that part is a very key uh, part of the contract between guru and disciple that we have to allow him to enter he knows your karma he knows every little thing about you and it's possible other saints know you too but they don't have the permission not just from you they don't have the permission from god god hasn't assigned them for your salvation whereas your guru has been specifically given to you for your freedom so you have to build that relationship from that point of view of constantly recognizing that I have to give the Guru permission and I have to ask him to help me experience these states, not just again know them. And then another very interesting little section here is Lahiri Mahashaya saying to a disciple nearby, please expound the holy stanzas as the meaning occurs to you. I will guide your thoughts that the right interpretation be uttered. You can see how he's testing his disciples attunement he's saying okay um, why don't you tell me what do you think these stanzas mean and i'm going to guide your interpretation and your thoughts 
and that will help both the guru know how open is the disciple to me and it will also help the disciple to feel the difference when the guru flows through you that when your thoughts are aligned to his thoughts then when you just have your own you know understanding again from the intellect and this is again an, a fun game for us to play do something without consciously tuning into the guru and then try to do that same thing asking the guru to guide your thought asking the guru to guide your actions asking him to guide your consciousness and see the difference because once you start experiencing the vibrational difference between when god flows through you versus when the ego flows flows through you you will then be able to start to align all your actions words and thoughts accordingly and this is again and again we maybe we're sounding like a broken record but this is the relationship all disciples all devotees again as narayani said whether having any formal discipleship or not everyone has to develop with god with the guru as the messenger of god for us a little bit side track and sharing um, a personal experience i had at the beginning when i started serving swami kriyananda i was a bit nervous 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 in the sense I didn't know the dynamics of what it was to serve, you know, such a, you know, high evolved soul. And I didn't know if I would be adequate to serve him, to understand, you know, vibrationally how to go about it and throughout the day what were the things that needed to be done and what was the kind of energy i needed to put out and even being in his presence you know it, it will my energy my restless thoughts affect his consciousness you know many little layers of how do you really behave and how do you really serve someone with such a high state of consciousness knowing <laughs> where your state of consciousness is and and i got a little bit worried that i wouldn't be able to to understand and in addition in a different language i mean there were so many things about the whole situation but from the very beginning I started serving Swamiji. He will ask me to come every morning to his house and meditate with him. Sometimes were longer, sometimes were shorter meditation, let's say 20 minutes, 30 minutes meditation before doing absolutely anything. Then when the meditation will end it, I will start and I'll just, you know, went on with my day, on with my day and helping him and just trying to cooperate with what was coming every single moment. And I understood that Swamiji actually never told me you have to do this, you have to do that and make sure don't forget about that and I have this appointment or if someone wants and wants an interview, please also make sure never ever every day was an adventure but i i realized that what swamiji was doing in those meditations those 20 30 minutes he was giving me transferring me through those meditations the intuitive understanding of how to go about it or how to act 
or what to decide and what was the right thing in each moment, which person will be appropriate now to come into Swamiji's orbit and what person should wait for two, three days more, what kind of emails were important for him to read, what kind of prayers had a priority. And he never said, not only to me, but I have seen and I saw that's how Swamiji trained and is training us, all of us right now. Never, a guru will never tell you very, very rarely what to do exactly. Our job is to attune ourselves with them, with him, through meditation and ask him, just guide me how to go through this difficult situation. Guide me how to make this decision in my company. Guide me and make sure that this relationship, you know, gets always uplifted and there is more harmony. And that's really our job because the guru is eagerly waiting to guide you. But our real job is just to open ourselves again this is really what it's all about opening ourselves and just listen for that constant guidance especially in meditation because what is given to us in meditation is a kind of consciousness that then we need to bring this out into everything we do and this is something that whether the guru is in the body or not still happening you can connect with Babaji, you can connect with Yogananda, you can connect with Christ. And if our attunement becomes more and more refined, the more they will be able to guide us throughout the day. That is why for those of us who practice the Om technique, we're always constantly really emphasizing that keep practicing even if you're not hearing the sounds of the chakras because it is this part it is this ability to listen and to want to listen that's the key most of the times we think we want to listen but we really don't know how and the own technique is specifically designed for us to be able to learn how to listen and it isn't important whether you hear the sounds it is that there is a deep desire on your part to listen. Um, just talking about what Narayani was giving you a personal example of what Swami said. In his own words, if you've read the book of uh, Nayaswami Asha, the light bearer, once somebody, one of the colony leaders, one of the community leaders, you know, they were all living together with Swami, but then Swami started sending them to different parts of the world and said, go and start little ashrams there. So one of them jokingly said, Swamiji, you just, you know, sent us away and you just abandoned us and you don't tell us what to do. Of course, they were just making fun and making light of that moment. But Swamiji got really serious and he said, I, I never abandoned you. You know, she just wanted to ensure that there is not even a slight doubt because sometimes our jokes are also, there's always based on some little <laughs> trigger that we have within. And he said, I never abandoned you. I am forever projecting thoughts and ideas at you, but it is up to you with what resonates with you that you will attract and then make your own. Isn't that just amazing? So the Guru is just constantly projecting thoughts towards us all the time. And it depends so much on our state of consciousness that what are we able to attract and what are we able to make our own. In fact, you know, on one level, if you think about it, all our thoughts, all our actions, everything that is life 
is given to us from the divine. It is just lower states of awareness and consciousness or higher states of awareness and consciousness. But nothing that you think is yours, your thoughts, your actions, your words, none of them are yours. So, you know, a little humility goes a long way here. Okay. No matter what the disciples problem, the Guru advised Kriya Yoga for its solution. Now, for those of us who practice Kriya Yoga, we can obviously understand why. But I want to put Kriya Yoga also in the context, not just of the technique, but of the science behind the technique, the principles of the technique. There are principles which are concentration, willpower and energy control. That's really what Kriya Yoga is. Your will through deep concentration allows you to control the flow of life force deep into your Shushumna. So for anything you want to do in life, you have to look at these three things. How much willpower do you put out? How deeply concentrated are you? And what is your ability to actually control and direct your life force towards the fulfillment of that goal? And then you add another layer of Kriya Yoga, which is the <laughs> devotion and the attunement to the Guru, which is key. You can't do Kriya Yoga until you have that. It is not a mechanical process. It is not a technique I can write down and just hand to you. you it won't benefit you. You, would, you could do it, but it won't produce results. And so in everything in our lives, and especially those of us who practice Kriya, try to see all your actions as a manifestation of your Kriya. And of course, on a deeper level, all problems, as uh, he's saying over here, can be solved through Kriya Yoga because in Kriya, what are we doing? We're directly attacking the vrittis, the seeds of karma. We're directly working with samskars. We're no longer working with just outward manifestations. And when you work inwardly with the samskars, with the karmic tendency itself, and if you can dissolve that in the Shushumna, well, it's just, it'll never manifest outwardly. You won't even have to really deal with it on the level of the physical reality with which otherwise is how we think we need to deal with the world and with our problems. You have something to say? Yeah. So this whole paragraph is just one of the... We can't move ahead. Yeah, it's just like right so wonderful. And I think everything about this chapter is in this paragraph. And yes, uh, no matter what the disciples' problem, the Guru advised Kriya Yoga for its solution. Then we move on. The next paragraph, and he says, continue ceaselessly on your path to liberation through Kriya, whose power lies in practice. So two things are happening here in this paragraph. First, the Guru is telling the disciple, listen, if you really want to you know, know about God, it's not going to be enough for me to tell you about him is not going to be enough for me explaining to you what I have experienced. What the Guru is saying here, Lahir Mahashaya, is like, you have to have that personal, personal experience. And this is what Kriya Yoga is all about. This is what techniques are all about. And especially this path of self-realization. We need to have that personal personal experience of what it means to feel God, 
within us. Meditation, Kriya Yoga will give you that personal experience. And the other thing that it says here is that its power comes from keep practicing. The more we practice, the more we'll feel the benefit of it. And this is something that we have seen again and again, and we hope we don't see it <laughs> more than we are seeing. People make a great effort in order to take Kriya initiation. They think the goal is to have Kriya because once they have Kriya, that's you know the, the real goal. And then when the Kriya initiation comes, they receive the technique. One week, two weeks later, they don't practice anymore. It's like almost that mm, enthusiasm and that zeal for the Kriya, to practice Kriya, get lost. I mean, like, just like that. And they don't realize that the real power, as Lahiri Mahashaya is saying, lies in practicing. So at the beginning, it's a little bit difficult because people need to put so many things together with the Kriya. But believe me, the moment you get initiated into Kriya, the more you practice, the more you will feel the results. Many people think, oh, I don't know if this is working for me. Well, let me ask you, are you really practicing? Are you lengthening your time of Kriya practice? And I will say, if you have put your Kriya aside, now could be it could be a good time to restart again and really challenge yourself and challenge in a sense your own guru if this is really a technique is going to help me to you know remove all these veils of ignorance and purify really my ego and just bring up so much unnecessary karma that i need to work you know need to get rid of just I'm, I'm going to practice and see what it brings in my life. And believe me, we have said this many times. I mean, we have been practicing Kriya for the past 15 years and I can't recognize myself anymore. Things that used to trigger me a lot, suddenly they are just like hardly anything. They, they don't create any ripple in my consciousness. So very, very important line here. Kriya Yoga's power lies in its practice. Kebalananda then concludes this section by saying, I myself consider Kriya the most effective device of salvation through self-effort ever to be evolved in man's search for the infinite. And the key here is through self-effort, as Narayani was saying, because God's grace can come and do a lot of good stuff for us, but we can't just sit around and hope one day it will descend, one day God will take pity on us and say, Chal, bechara, ye kitna kar rahe, isko de dete That effort has to magnetize that grace. And Kriya is essentially magnetizing yourself to God's grace. Because on the path of Kriya, on, the, on this path, Yogananda said, in fact, he said, the spiritual journey is 25% the effort of the disciple, 25% the effort of the Guru on the disciple's behalf, and 50% God's grace. So essentially, he's saying 75% of the spiritual path has not, is like, is not even ours. However, 
He says the disciples 25% is what attracts the 75%. So we have to put out that 25%, which is our 100%, before the other laws of God's grace begin to activate in our lives. Then he continues on with a different story, one of the miracles of uh, Lahari Mahashaya's life. A blind disciple, Ramu, aroused my active pity. The my here is Swami Kebalananda. Should he have no light in his eyes when he faithfully served our master? One morning, I sought to speak to Ramu, but he sat for patient hours fanning the Guru with a handmade palm leaf pankha. Very sweet, that seva. When the devotee finally left the room, I followed him. Ramu, how long have you been blind? From my birth, sir. Never have my eyes been blessed with a glimpse of the sun. Our omnipotent Guru can surely help you. Please make a supplication. The following day, Ramu diffidently approached Lahari Mahashaya. The disciple felt almost ashamed to ask that physical wealth be added to his spiritual superabundance. I love this line. The disciple felt almost ashamed to ask that physical wealth be added to his spiritual superabundance. Let's stop here for a moment because two things are happening here. First, Ramu himself never thought to ask Lahiri Mahashaya for a blessing, for a healing. You know, it, it seems here that the idea didn't even enter Ramu's mind. Like, huh, yeah, here's God. <laughs> Why don't I just ask him to cure my blindness? And it kind of, you can almost see the instrument here. Of course, a divine play is uh, at play, but all life is a divine play. All our lives are having the same mysterious, mischievous play of Krishna through his Leela. So Swami Kebalananda was the instrument here to arouse in Ramu this question. But you can see, you can see the state of the devotee. And this is what it takes in order to be the devotee who could receive such healing. The state of the devotee where he felt, I mean, how dare I? approach my guru who has given me so much spiritual wealth and ask for something as meager as a physical healing. I mean, how many of us can say that that's the state of our um, kind of relationship with the guru? Well, we're constantly thinking about what else can I ask the problem gone away. Is it a permanent healing or will it return to you later in this life or most probably in the next life? to come. And I think with that, unless Narayani has something to end, let's read the last line of this chapter so we can feel good about finishing it. Yogananda says, I never became a Sanskrit scholar. Kebalananda taught me a diviner syntax. Very sweet. Here is little, you can say, desire to know Lahiri Mahashaya deeper, to know God deeper, was fulfilled through the instrument, through the channel of his Sanskrit tutor. Find your own Sanskrit tutor, find your own instrument and channel that God has placed in your life, who will fulfill these lesser 
you can say levels of spiritual necessities before we are ready to perceive and receive directly from the guru himself i got stuck in this line because i loved it uh, it says here but the silent spiritual awakenings he affected i mean lahiri mahashaya the christ like disciples he fashioned are his imperishable miracles mm. what it says here to me is like first of all the job the role of the guru is just not to make you dependent and attached to him but he wants to make you your own guru he wants to create you and bring out your highest potential and that's really the legacy of a true guru which are his disciples because they have the responsibility later to carry on his mission in fact everything that is written about lahiri mahashaya has come through his disciples even the autobiography of a yogi there is a whole chapter about lahiri mahashaya uh, yogananda himself as one of his you know it was yogananda's param guru and he felt that responsibility and the same way it happened with christ he had those 12 disciples that eventually they created the christianity and the message that christ had so in a sense the real miracle is going to be what the guru is going to make of us i mean we are his greatest piece of art he's not interested in anything else but to make us pure diamonds and to shine our light that's the real job of the guru and he won't stop he won't be satisfied until we become that perfect piece of art i mean it's just i cannot imagine any more any other act of unconditional love and mm, mission that the guru really has which is he comes especially for his disciples to train them to shape them to make them free in this lifetime as much as he can as much as we are able to open ourselves and receive his blessings so remember right now for many of us who are yogananda's disciples or if you have your own guru you are the most important thing in your guru's consciousness i mean you and he has a special place for each one of us he's coming for us and he will never again be satisfied until we become perfect and that's so beautiful because we will be his legacy and recently we posted something on instagram or facebook and this is how swami kriyananda also wanted to be remembered as a good disciple he say everyone nowadays want to become a guru but what we need the most is examples of to be a good disciple and i think that will be a good thing for us to to keep in mind throughout the week this week how we can become a better disciples how can we keep opening our heart uh, more openly more fully more 
joyfully. If you can read that um, little section of the conversation between Ramu and Lahiri Mahashaya again, just a few times during this week, it's it's a very very powerful section just to see um, how we as disciples can re refine, reshape those words and that interaction with the Guru. Okay, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. See you tomorrow. We hope um, we have our Sunday service, Sunday Satsang, mm-hmm. ten a.m. The topic we've chosen, we think we've chosen, <laughs> is good health, a radiant sense of well-being. And of course, we want to go beyond health, but we're just using those words to help see what is it within us, how is it that we can bring out that radiant sense of well-being in everything that we do. Okay, have a fabulous day. See you, everybody.